I want to talk to you on the on the podcast Slack. And you know what? What sound you hear? You hear, right? Yeah. Yeah. In about a year, that's going to be Mark Benioff going. You Salesforce. Are you struggling to deploy cloud-native applications to a hybrid cloud? Do you want to become familiar with Kubernetes and Istio? IBM Cloud has a set of free, hands-on training, eBooks, and an always-on free tier of services to help you learn. Visit ibm.biz/stackoverflow to learn more. That's ibm.biz/stackoverflow. Hello, good morning everybody and welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Make sure you have your Flash plugin installed. Otherwise, you won't be able to participate in today's podcast. Steve Jobs said we don't have to use Flash anymore. (laughs) Hey. Hey, Ben. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Paul. Hey, Ben. Good morning. Sarah, you're calling us from the cabana. We're very jealous. Cabana life. Yeah. Cabana life in it. There's a hammock in the background. (laughs) And a really nice looking microphone. Yeah. The the hammock's comfortable. We've escaped to warm weather for a little while. So some news I saw today, it popped up on my computer as Flash does. It's going to be retired, deprecated, yeah, uh, no longer supported by Adobe. And this is, I feel like, one of those things in the life of a computer user where just at, at any moment, you could be sleeping, taking a shower, making a meal. Adobe will come and say, excuse me, you have to reinstall Flash now. Yeah, And you just think like, why now? Do I have to? And then if you don't, Later on, you're trying to do something important and time sensitive, and suddenly you need Flash or the latest version of Flash. Well, I needed Flash two days ago when I went back to um, ZomboCom. Y'all remember ZomboCom? ZomboCom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the only time I've needed it in a while, but it was definitely worth the experience. So I'm wondering if ZomboCom will also be deprecated, which would be heartbreaking. Well, okay, right. so there's a, there's a lot going on around this. So first of all, the Internet Archive has figured out, this is kind of cool, there is a a Rust Flash interpreter called Ruffle. Mm. Wow, I didn't know that. That's so cool. There's a Flash player emulator called Ruffle, which means that you can compile it to WebAssembly and run Flash in the browser. Now, it doesn't support everything, but it definitely supports the kind of Homestar Runner style of Flash, where it's animated, the sort of like that, that data where, you know, Characters are moving around in the anime. What a cool website Ruffle has. Yeah, Ruffle Ruffle looks very 90s. They gave it a very 90s logo. And so, first of all, bless the people who wrote the Flash Interpreter in Rust. Rust. And then you go to the (laughs) Internet Archive, and uh, they have lots of Flash emulated, and they're uploading hundreds of things. And, like, classics, including Badger, 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 Badger. um, Yeah, very important stuff. Like, really, the the good stuff and and all the Homestar Runners. So uh, what's not emulated fully is all of the action script, because remember they had, like, the full JavaScript built in. Flash is funny because I actually think Flash was a kind of wonderful media type for the web because it let people make, they would use their pirated Flash to make little animals talk, right? And that is so good. That's actually so much what this medium is about, is talking badgers. Yeah, if you look at the sponsors on the of Ruffle, it's a really interesting group of gaming companies and then the New York Times. Sure, sure. Flash once had a large user base. Adobe stated in 2013 there were more than 400 million 
out of 100 billion connected desktops. And it says here, that's right, common format for web games. That was the number one thing. And animations. And Newgrounds. Remember, so like you could make something and you could upload it to Newgrounds. It was a, it was a real entryway to digital work for people. And it was also a proprietary locked-in heap of mess. And then Adobe went <laughs> banana cakes. Adobe's like, we're going to have this thing called Flex. It's going to be, you know, you'll do XML configuration files. Then we'll have Adobe Air. We're going to take on Java. Like Adobe was just like, we have got to get Flash to take over the world. And, right. and then JavaScript. And JavaScript. They had JavaScript in Flash, and that was going to take over the world. Like, yeah, yeah, no, no. And then Steve Jobs just shut it down. Yeah. issued a memo. <laughs> and it was like, we will not be supporting Flash on the iPhone. Everybody's like, oh, my God, he got it. And then they were like, oh, he can do that. That's, oh, oh. That's yeah. a big one. Yeah. It's so funny, Apple, killing those things. Well, how do we think that meeting went? Do you? How, why do you think that he decided? Well, here's what's tricky. Early iPhone, right? It wasn't the App Store. It was like the three Apple-approved apps or the 10 Apple-approved apps yeah. and, and the web. It's about control. You, well, you can yeah, get to the web, the though. It had a really good web browser for a smartphone. That was a miracle. And so... And then it didn't support Flash. So suddenly this big part of the interactive dynamic web, which was the big thing you were going to get out of the iPhone, along with like, you know, the phone and the contacts app, just didn't work. And, you know, Adobe's like, come on, come on, come on. Two things. One is the memory (laughs) management model of the iPhone. It was actually always really tight. So that makes a lot of sense. Flash just went to town. It was for desktops, right? And so I think at a practical level, making Flash truly work on the iPhone where your battery wouldn't just implode in about two minutes uh, was probably close to impossible. Or just like Apple was not willing to create, to do that work. And then, you know, so then that was the death knell. And it wasn't clear that that was the death knell. But I mean, you know, as, as mobile usage took over. And then there still isn't as easy a way to make animated content. Scratch actually comes close, I think. When you go and use Scratch, the programming environment with the little Lego blocks. Yeah. Oh, really? That's wild. I actually, I, I think of it as like a learning tool for kids. If you look, people yeah, are people are making like talking animal sprites moving around type of stuff in that world. But yeah, that was Steve Jobs' whole thing, right? You would bring in the device, he would tear it to pieces, he'd yell at you, he'd drop it in the fish tank. And like, he needed to know that it was absolutely going to work the way he wanted it to work. So Flash was going to stand in the way of that when that massive update came along or memory management came along, things of that nature. And so, yeah, and I mean, look, this is this industry and and it's hard. I mean, Adobe did just fine. Um, And what we have now is HTML5, which is about as long as the novel Infinite Jest or five stacks of Bibles. And you just kind of (laughs) and uh, and that doesn't even refer to the actual contents of the media inside. But here is time as a flat circle. So Future Wave Software, founded in 1993, was the original creator of Flash. And their first product was SmartSketch, a drawing program for Penpoint OS and the EO tablet computer. They were a little ahead of their time there. But uh, then the uh, smartphone came along and killed Flash. Wow. That's I, you couldn't write it better than that. I mean, it was Macromedia. Things got rolled into Adobe. You're you're looking at just like the, yeah. the '90s history. There are no new ideas, right? We've been talking about little tiny devices that do everything since the '70s. But this is a classic example of implementation being everything, and not always in a good way. Like we always talk about that, like, oh well, you know, everybody can have ideas, but implementation is everything. And it's like brutal planet scale implementation with no take backs is everything. Like you can really get a lot mm-hmm. done if you're uh, re- really like, <laughs> yeah, no take backs is the hard one. No, no take backs. Yeah. And no monster companies. that's just going to kill your, kill your project. Speaking of monster companies that might kill your project. Oh, no. 
some interesting news this morning and I uh, thought we, it might be worth chatting about since it's a, a constant in most people's lives these days. Salesforce to acquire Slack. I, so here's the only thing I know about Salesforce as a developer is that anytime someone tries to sell me something and says, what's the weather like in New Jersey? I know they're using Salesforce because somewhere in like a global Salesforce, my location is New Jersey, which I haven't lived there in 10 years. But <laughs> right. that's so that's the only thing about Salesforce that it doesn't know where I live. That, that I that I'm right. that actually protects you. Yeah, that's a good tell. So that way, you know, So what? how does that apply to Slack is the question. It's not going to know what device to find me on, maybe. I feel like this is one of those things where, you know, the salespeople that we have have all kinds of automated things that they do to like keep their funnel flowing, their prospects warm, you know, all that great language that they use. And so this is going to be like, just from Slack, this little notification is going to pop up. Like, do you want to ping Sarah? And just reminder, the software is still available to purchase. Relax. Okay. So first of all, (laughs) we have to talk about Salesforce because Salesforce started as a CRM, uh, customer relationship management tool, which is, you know, I'm going to move the cards along and, and you know, this is a hot prospect and, and this is, oh, right. sale, you know, contracting. I, I live in a CRM. I don't, we don't use Salesforce because it's exhausting and, and, and huge, but it's pretty good for that use case. It also includes like its own programming environment. I think it's called Apex. Like it is a whole world. It's got APIs. It does all the stuff. That's just Salesforce. But what's clear is like Salesforce lives in a world where Oracle nips at its heels and Microsoft nips at its heels and it nips at their heels. And so it has bought more companies than I have bought like Little Debbie snack cakes in the course of my life. Like it, <laughs> it has absolutely like, it, I mean, literally it's like you go to the store and you're like, ooh, those peanut things are good, man. And that that's how Salesforce sees companies. Well, Tableau is the big one. I remember that, you know, obviously you get a lot more software and data analytics and things baked in. That happened a year ago. Yeah. And that was a massive. That was 15 billion Good ones. That's what that was. No, I mean, my favorite is that they bought Kenlet in January 2007, an original product called Crispy News. Uh, but that was used at Salesforce Idea Exchange and Dell Idea, Idea Storm. And now they relaunched that at Salesforce Ideas. That, If that made any sense to you, if you that's from the <laughs> Wikipedia page. They buy kind of big enterprisey businessy things. They're clearly trying to get in there. So it's like, hey, you know, eventually, like today, you're a giant company and you say, I need enterprise resource planning, sales and all these things. And Oracle just like right. hears you and, and sends a satellite to be over your house and just be like, hey, 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 what you doing? What you doing with that? Salesforce wants to get in there. It wants to make sure that it owns the whole process. Microsoft is interesting here too, right? Because they've got teams and they've clearly, I'm sure they're like, should we buy Slack? Nah, we'll just make our own. So I think what Salesforce is saying is like, yeah, we're going to have the whole thing. Like eventually it'll all live together, Mm -hmm. but we're going to have the whole thing so that when you need to turn on your giant mega corporation for Mm -hmm. sales and resource planning and accounting and all those things, we're eventually, and and data analysis, we're, you're going to turn on Salesforce and we're going to upsell you. So now everybody who has Salesforce can pay money to have Slack with Salesforce integration. I think that makes a lot of sense. I do think that the Slack, yeah, has become, you know, the like day-to-day operating system for a lot of people. That's where you're doing most of your communicating, you're sharing your files, I'm getting pings about things that are updating. So it does make sense if they'd want to just, yeah, be where the action is, right? That it's is a big correct. sale. It's yeah. going to be a big deal. I don't think it probably won't be Tableau big, 
But it'll be big. This will be a big deal. So this is big. this is probably going to happen as we're recording. Everybody's like, "Slack's going to." And so, <laughs> I, yeah, it becomes official right when this podcast is released tomorrow. It doesn't mean much, <laughs> I think, to anyone using Slack. Like, I don't, I don't, I just don't see a lot. Like, Slack's already a commercial product. It's not like everyone's going to like just. Oh well, I guess I have to leave Slack now because of Salesforce. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm if I'm Slack. What are my other options? Oracle could buy me. That's bad. Microsoft could buy me. Eh. I think my, my joke about it pinging you is probably wrong, but for the salespeople who do use it, right? Like it's going to make it easier to do all it's that It's already stuff deeply did. integrated. Like our CRM, it's every, you know, emails go to the CRM that go into Slack and, you know, it pings all the time. So absolutely, Slack is workflow tools for a lot of people. It's I, I love Slack, yeah. but it's not great great for workflow. So that part drives me a little bananas because it's just like this endless, it's, it's all the bad things about IRC, but now you have to do it at work. Did you guys ever roll your own IRC? We did that when I first started at The Verge. We were rolling our own IRC and we would like update it every six months. Yeah, it's a bad scene too. Chat's great for like <laughs> ambient stuff where computers are telling people things like bots and dev. You know, like when your bot is like code pushed, that's cool. But then it's actually really yeah. bad for keeping track of things. We have a great piece on the blog this week. It's from Gerge Arose. It's a how to write an effective developer resume advice from a hiring manager. Um, some of you know who's reviewing hundreds of resumes a year um, and was actually just researching a book on this along with pieces of advice from other folks in similar positions. So we'll put that in the show notes, but uh, yeah, let's discuss a little. Sarah, what do you think about the advice in here? I think that this is great advice. I, I was looking through this and I think the using the quick scan template, I really appreciate. I've gone through a lot of resumes as well. And that's one thing that I always talk to folks about is make sure it's really easy to get your story on a quick scan. Cause usually people are, you know, when you have a open role open, you're going through resumes, you might be going through 50 resumes in an hour. Right. And so you don't have mm. the time to sit there and look. And so setting up right. your resume in a way that your experience can be quickly garnered by a scan is great. I always advise people to put their the languages that they are proficient in in a quick grid at the top of their resume so you can quickly see the places mm-hmm. that people have expertise, I think. I mean, Sarah, Sarah, what you're saying is think about the user, which you're supposed yeah. to do. But it's yes. really hard when you're doing a resume because you feel that there's something magical that like if you just say the right magic words, it'll be okay. But that advice, mm-hmm. right? Put your stuff at the top. Be mindful. People do love to do these little charts now where it's like they rate themselves with circles from on like one to 10. And I think there's some like resume builder tool that does them. Don't overdo it. Cause then it's like, well, okay, great. You rated yourself really well. Like, I don't know who you are. Right. So it's yeah. just like, I, that's nice for me. Right. Just tell me what the things are. Don't try to add a lot of metadata. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good point. But yeah, it's it's incredible scannability. And the reality is that you're looking for one hit out of many. Sometimes people will get really interested in the in in my company and they'll want to come work there. And I and they will have been somewhere else for 10 years. And I'll be like, yeah, no, like that's a you're looking for a natural transition here where you actually probably need to go poke around and apply a lot of places. And those people get back in touch and be like, yeah, you were totally right. I would have been miserable working for you. I'm like, yeah, I know. Right. Like we're an agency. You don't want to, right. you didn't want to do that. You wanted to go, you wanted to go to a startup or you wanted to go to a big company or, or just sort of, but you really, you should, if you're not thinking of yourself as like, if you're not sending out like 30, 40 resumes, mm-hmm. you're not going to get the signal back 
that you would. And resumes, should, you should feel that those are like pings. Like it's just the cheapest yeah. network ping that you can possibly send. I do think that what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. It's kind of like everybody wants to write that anecdotal lead for their article. That's like that sweet story with the perfect quote. But what you really need is the great headline, the subhead and the image. And that if somebody's scanning the page is what they're going to see, right? Like that beautiful poetry, mm, it's not going to get you where you need to go unless they decide to look and you know read a little deeper. I work hard and can do the work. Yeah, right. and I'm aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think about the first filter and the second filter. First filter is like simply did the person apply for the correct job, right? Like, and I'm not right. like you. Might, oh, well, it sounds very reductive. No, most people apply for the wrong job. They just because you're up against mm. everybody pinging, right? So this is the flip side. And then what's that second filter? Well, so first filter is just like you know, it's like routing, and then the second filter is well, actually, the true first filter is like, do I see tremendous variety? Because that's a risk. I need to see somebody who can kind of do the job and has done it for a couple years somewhere, ideally, unless they're they're new. Or I need to understand why. Like sometimes, if you see four startups in a row, you're like, oh, all right, well, this person did a run of startups. And yeah, startups imploding after a year isn't a isn't actually a very powerful signal on a resume. It's like, oh, all right, maybe they're a good engineer. Like that's fine. Working at four big companies in a row is a very powerful signal of like, uh-oh, what's happening here? Doesn't mean that you're done for. Mm. It just means like right. you might want to tell a story there. I saw an interesting uh, tweet this morning. The Supreme Court will hear arguments today about an outdated anti-hacking law, the CFAA. And so I don't think we can dive deep into this because there's a lot of nuts and bolts to it. But one part that I thought was interesting was hashtag scraping is not a crime. So I guess what's happening here is that there are people who, for one reason or another, want to gather data. For example, this is from The Markup, which is like an investigative journalistic outfit. And apparently you can sort of twist and turn the CFAA to go after people as hackers just for scraping information from a public site, which I thought was pretty, yeah, sounds ridiculous on the face of it. Well, no, this has always been the case, man. Like people, I remember... um Somebody scraped a public endpoint from, I think it was AT&T and got in big trouble. It's, mm. The burden is is always on the hacker if they're doing something uh, kind of sketchy. Like it's, you assume it would be on the person who put the, the information up in public. But uh, so maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, look, I'm, I'm looking at the, as you're telling me this, I'm like, uh-oh, 18 U.S. Code 1030, fraud and related activity in connection with computers on law.cornell.edu. It's a lot about scraping financial or hacking in and getting uh, financial information. I wouldn't expect everything to go the way we were hoping here at the <laughs> Super Cyber Freedom Club that we're, yeah. we belong to. <laughs> I love Super Cyber Freedom Club. It's really, man, this stuff always scares me. I always think about Senate meetings where you have Zuckerberg in the front of the room saying, we sell ads, Senator, and just being generally uh, concerned about do you understand all the applications of scraping before you're going to make this decision? Because there are a lot of boot camp final projects that use scraping. You know right. what I mean? Like it's like how how able are they to fully under uh, comprehend the totally. the consequences of a big decision like this? Which I which I imagine they have a process for, but. It's no longer a series of tubes, right? Like there are good technical advisors in the Senate and Congress in the White House, much better than there used to be. But the problem is that like the fundamental libertarian ethos or the very fundamental nature of the way that the the internet works, often like that can be really confusing 
to the law. Like they're just like, well, nope. a good example is in the 90s, there was the idea of the clipper chip, which would be like you could kind of always have a backdoor for any encryption algorithm. And we're back mm. there now. We're having that conversation again. And it's just like, oh, God. you yeah, can't. Yeah, yeah. You can't do it. Like, it's not going to work because then we'll go make our own and, and someone will get the PGP key tattooed on their body. Like, you cannot litigate math, but boy, do they try. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, look, the, I think the counter argument is like, well, look, we, you know, we litigate, you know, what people can do with plutonium. And you're like, yeah, but that's just, that's not in people's brains. Like, things in people's <laughs> brains are really hard to litigate, so. Sarah, you made a good point about the uh, boot camp. I think a lot of stuff that I've been following during the pandemic, they were talking about how they were gathering data from all these different sources. And often, yeah, it wasn't an API. They're like scraping public websites of, you know, health departments and hospitals yeah. and things like that. And then aggregating in this really useful information, right? So that's like a use case you could do. Well, defend. you know who's always trying to protect themselves is LinkedIn. That database, that public mm. database is incredibly valuable. And they have all sorts of policies. And there have been multiple suits from people just going to town on LinkedIn and LinkedIn saying no. And the court's going like, well, it's on the web. And, you know, and they were all cool. We're cool <laughs> when Google does it, right? So then there becomes that. Like it's Google is like the bad meme where there's like the handsome guy and then the, the, <laughs> the goofy guy comes up and is like, hey, can I spot your site? And, the, yeah. and, and she's like, nah, man, get out of here, right? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But everybody's all cool when Google shows up. It's like, hey, you mind if I just spider around here? And everybody's like, Abs oh, he's so, <laughs> hmm. God, he just looks rich. <laughs> um, I mean, the flip side, no, I mean, what's really going on is that for better or for worse, we know what Google's going to do with our data. You're going to give it to Google and then they're going to put it into their search engine. And then people will be able to find the data. Other people show up to spider and, and you're like, well, what are you going to do with it? And it's like, well, actually, we're going to make a complete competitive product. And you're like, well, don't do that because I, I made this. Yeah. But they're like, well, it's cool when Google does it. And you're like, yeah. And then now the courts get involved and they're literally like, how do I turn on my flip phone? And so that's why we have the system we have. All right, y'all. It is that time of the episode, that time of the week. I'm going to read you some life votes. Sarah, I think I remember you asking this on an earlier episode. Why does printf not work? Awarded November 26. This, this is one a real is I can't print. Classic. It's lazy as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On many systems, it is buffered, but definitely a classic from four years ago. I am learning programming in C. Can you explain why nothing is printed here? Mm, yes, yes, we can. We can help you out with that. Oh, one. that is a brutal, that is a brutal baby programmer problem when you mm, can't figure out why it's not printing. Print. Because, yeah, because it, it, it's, yeah. it's sort of. How do you fix it? Yeah, how do you fix it? Because it doesn't, it's sitting there in memory. You just like streams, streams will wreck your mind. <laughs> well, thanks y'all for coming in. All right, I'm Ben Popper, director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can find me at Ben Popper on Twitter or email us podcast at stackoverflow.com. And I'm Sarah Chips, director of community here at Stack Overflow. And you can find me at Sarah Joe on GitHub. And I'm Paul Ford, friend of Stack Overflow. Check out my company, Postlight. Sweet. All right. Thanks, y'all.